good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's great to have you here today. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. And I hope that you have spent some time reading um, this chapter of the Bible. Really, the entire book is really important to read it all. It gets you the flow, the context. I do know that a number of you have already read chapter 2, and the reason that I know this is because you have made a point to tell me in the last few days that you're looking forward to today to see how much I sweat today. And, and what they mean by that is not because of these lights put off any heat at all that would make me sweat, which they do, by the way, but really make me sweat and how much I sweat due to the subject matter of chapter 2. In case you're not aware, 1 Timothy 2, um, Paul is writing instructions about what is proper for the church, especially when it comes to our worship gatherings and our prayer times. And in the context of that, Paul writes some specific instructions just for men, and he writes some specific instructions that are just for the women of the church there in Ephesus. And the reality of this is that the language of 1 Timothy 2, it can rub some people the wrong way, and and it has, especially the last few verses of chapter 2, not because it's difficult to understand, because it's really not difficult to understand at all, but rather because these couple verses in chapter 2 are so different than where our current society here in America is at right now. People read that and they're like, wait a minute, this doesn't gel with the way people think these days. There is some th- there's three very strong realities about our text today. And the first reality is that 1 Timothy 2 has been the source of a lot of debate among Christians for a lot of years. It just really has. There have been books written about this, podcasts recorded, things have been written, articles, debates, public debates held, church meetings. I mean, all about what does it mean by these few verses in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So it's been debated for years. There's also another reality about 1 Timothy chapter 2. And that is that it's complicated due to the current cultural debate happening in our country right now. The debate about gender equality roles, gender responsibilities, and all things gender-related. Because of the society we live in and the way that our world thinks about these things these days, it really does tend to complicate this chapter of the Bible. It is also a reality about our text that the Bible today, it is attacked and it is ridiculed simply because the Bible is not a gender-neutral book. What I mean by that is simply this. There are parts of the Bible that contain instructions that are written for men. And there are parts of the Bible that contains instructions that are written specifically for women. And we are living in a society, and I think you'd agree with this, that is growing more and more gender neutral. So biblical language that seems to teach or implies or appears that men and women might have different roles in this world, especially when you couple language with it that says that, that God, God wants these to be different roles that men and women play, then language like that is often rebuked in today's culture. It's often rejected by people um, because of this gender neutrality that our world is moving towards. There are people today, and maybe you've had conversations with, they've brought this up, there are people that reject rebuke, ridicule the Bible simply because the language of Scripture speaks of God using masculine pronouns. He, his, him, himself. I can tell you again that that reading and understanding 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's not what's difficult 
today. What's difficult is understanding 1 Timothy chapter 2 and not allowing that the way our current culture thinks about such things to get in the way. That's what's challenging. Now, I want to kind of illustrate this by, by telling this. You may not know this, but I wear glasses quite a bit of the time. It's not a strong prescription, but I wear it primarily when I drive and when I watch TV. You know, it just helps clear things up out in the distance, which is kind of good when you're driving. Wouldn't you agree? You kind of want to see things coming at you. Um, in fact, if I put my glasses on, there'd be twice as many of you right now. But anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, it's really not that strong a prescription, but I, I wear glasses. And uh, if those glasses... Um, could serve as an illustration, it would be this. Those glasses, when I'm wearing them, I'm looking through a lens. Just like you, when you wear glasses, you're looking through a lens. And, you know, we all look at the world through a certain set of lenses, don't we? I mean, we look around, these lenses, how we see the world are interpreted through the lenses that we look at them. Have you ever said to somebody, you're just looking at things with rose-colored lenses on? Have you ever said that? All that's just our phrase of saying that you're not seeing things as clearly as they should. Have you ever had a son or daughter fall in love and everything is great? We're going to get married. We're never going to have a problem. We're, it's going to be wonderful, the big house with the white picket fence. And you're going, you're looking at the idea of marriage through rose-colored lenses. Because we all know marriage takes work. It's not always easy. There's conflict. That's what we mean. You're, you're just looking at it through rose-colored lenses. What kind of lenses do we look at the world through? Most people in this world, they look at everything in life through what I would call a secular or a worldly lens. They see everything through the way the world thinks about life in general. So when we look at the Bible, and if we have lenses that are worldly and secular, and we're approaching passages passage of Scripture like 1 Timothy 2, and we see it from a worldly point of view, it's going to be in conflict. The goal as Christians is to see the world through what I would call scriptural lenses, having a biblical worldview. So as we look at everything that's going on in this world, everything that's going on in life, we look at our jobs, our families, everything, we look at it through biblical lenses. And when you see the world through biblical lenses, it changes everything. That is always the conflict when it comes to Scripture. Are we approaching Scripture in a worldly viewpoint? Or are we approaching the life from a biblical point, uh, point of view? It's always going to be in conflict. But I'll tell you, that just makes a lot of sense to me, especially in light of where this chapter takes us today. So what I'd like to do is with that in mind, I'd like to charge right into 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to remind you as we do that, do you remember why Paul sent Timothy or left him there in Ephesus? Do you remember why? It's because false teaching was doing what? It was wrecking the church. It was absolutely destroying it. And so Paul sends Timothy there to do what? To command people not to teach false doctrines any longer. These, this church was caught up in meaningless talk, strange ideas, weird genealogies. They were taking scripture out of context, making it mean things it didn't mean. All this stuff was happening. And what was the result? Some have departed, it's what Paul says in the first chapter, some have departed from what I think is the goal of every Christian, having a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In fact, he even says there are some in the church who have, and these are his words, shipwrecked their faith. Boy, that paints you a picture of somebody's faith, doesn't it? You've shipwrecked it. He names Hymenius and Alexander as two people um, that shipwrecked their faith there in the church in Ephesus. Man, how bad did things have to go for the Apostle Paul to name you in Scripture for all time? Pretty bad. So they've shipwrecked their faith, and what Paul said has been hurt the most is like the work of God does not continue. The advancement of the gospel has, has come to a screeching halt. 
That's why Timothy is there. The, the church in Ephesus is a mess. And what it appears, as we read the rest of Paul's letter to Timothy and the church there in Ephesus, it appears that they've lost sight of the purpose of the church. I think that's why Paul said, and at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 15, when he said this to Timothy. Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that it deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Why would he say it so bluntly? Could it be because they just have lost sight of it? Timothy, this is why we're doing what we're doing. The big picture. Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. What is not happening because of all this false teaching is that very thing. People aren't coming to salvation. Now, as we move into chapter 2, it becomes clear that the church in Ephesus, as I said, had become quite messy. Seems like false teaching has created confusion, disunity, arguments, fighting has broken out in the church. People are there for all the wrong reasons. And what has been drastically affected is their worship gatherings, their times of worship, their times of prayer. When they meet together, it's way off track. And so Paul, in the next chapter, he will even write about the reasons behind these instructions. Now, we're going to get to chapter 3 next week, but he says this in, in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people should do what? Ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So the problem is false teaching. The result, false teaching has messed everything up, including their worship services. The solution, Timothy, you get to Ephesus, you command them to stop teaching false doctrine, and you bring things back into order. Friends, I want you to hear something today. Context is really important when reading the Bible. I mean, it's of such great importance, I can't even undervalue how important it is. In fact, um, every Bible college student who takes their first class in biblical hermeneutics, which is just a fancy name for interpreting scripture, every first year, first semester Bible college student is going to learn this one truth about context. Context is king. If you can remember that today as a church, context is king. Studying any part of the Bible, what is the context? Who was it written to? Where was it written? Why was it written? To, to what is going on when it was written? All of these questions are of great importance. And I will tell you that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, context is king. We should understand and interpret 1 Timothy 2 in the context of this church that's been messed up and their worship services, and their gatherings, and their organization within the body of Christ has been messed up due to false teaching. It's all out of whack. So, time to bring it all in order, and this is Timothy's job. So look at chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, and it just starts like this. Paul said, Timothy, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. That we may live peaceful lives and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher to the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger 
or disputing. So we're going to stop right there for a moment. And as we read that, uh, we kind of get the impression, uh, more than kind of, that their worship gatherings uh, were not reflecting the true purpose of why they gathered. It's not, they're off, off focus, if you will. Seems that they've taken their eyes off of prayer. It doesn't seem like there's much prayer happening. It seems like the focus of those worship gatherings are way off base. So the prayers that aren't happening, though some that are, are probably not focused on what they need to be. And so when he begins this, this part of his letter, he just says, petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving are to be made for all people. It's kind of interesting. He uses four different words that all kind of mean the same thing. There's subtle differences, but these are four words for prayer. Why does he say like prayer, 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 prayer? Why does it come across kind of like that in the text? Pray, 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 pray. Could it be that he is emphasizing the importance of prayer more than anything else? And these Christians obviously weren't doing it. They've lost sight of it. They weren't talking with God. They weren't seeking his will. They weren't giving him praise. They don't seem to be praying for one another, and it would seem that prayer has been lost in their walk with God. Now, I want to let you know, today's sermon is not really about prayer so much, but the reality is this, that as a church family, if we don't pray, if we don't make requests of God, if we don't bring our families together in prayer, if we're not interceding on behalf of others and ourselves to God, if we're not offering thanksgiving to him, if that is an absent reality in our gatherings together, if that is absent in our life groups, if that is absent in our homes, then I promise you something will fill that void. Something will, and it will probably be not good just like in the, the Christians here in Ephesus. What did they fill that void with? Anger, disputing, false teaching, um, are all kinds of stuff filled what should have been filled with prayer. So Paul's instruction is for the church to get back focused on prayer and to pray for everyone. And then I like Paul's little add-on here. It's almost like he's saying, and for just clarity's sake, my definition of everyone also includes kings and those in authority. Could it be that there was a little rebelliousness that came into the church? Maybe some civil rebellious? I'm not sure. But we ask the question, why in the world today would we pray for people like that? Why pray for leaders and authority figures? Why do we pray for whoever happens to be the president of the United States? Why do we pray for that individual? Why do we pray for our governor? Why do we pray for our Congress? Why do we pray for our mayor? Why do we pray for our boss at work? Why do we pray for our civil leaders? Why do we pray for our police officers? Why do we pray for our teachers? Why do we pray for our parents? Why? And the list could go on and on. Why do we pray for people that are in authority over us? It's simple. And I think this is why Paul brings it up. It's because... For those who lead well, and we would want them to be led with all of God's help. For those who lead well, the result is what? Quiet, peaceful lives for us. People who lead well create peaceful and quiet lives for those who they lead. And it says right here in verse 3, that is good and pleasing to the Lord. It's almost like this is what the Lord wants. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to like quiet and peaceful. How about you? I love quiet and peaceful. It's like, honey, what do we got going on tonight? Nothing. We're home. Praise God. We're home. 
I know some people that thrive on controversy. I'm not one of them. I like peace. I like quiet. Could it be that this false teaching that had run amok in the church that was causing all these fights and quarrels, nothing was peaceful, nothing was quiet. Could it be, and maybe one of the emphasis of Paul telling them to pray for their kings and authorities is because maybe this has bled outside the walls of the church and the church was getting a bad reputation with the leaders of Ephesus. Could it very well be that? I don't know. But something was amiss, their worship, their conduct. Paul is trying to rein it in. And in verse four, what's he say? He, he reminds them that God wants all people to be saved. Salvation is still at the heart of all we do. Friends, I don't want us ever as a church to lose sight of everything that we do ultimately is for the purpose of leading more and more people into salvation's path so that they can have a relationship with God. Now, I want you just to look at what we've read so far in chapter 1 on into chapter 2. Look at the picture that Paul is painting for these Christians. Look at this vision that he's putting out there in front of them. He's talking about quiet and peaceful lives, men of prayer who are focused on the big picture that God wants all people to be saved. How does this happen? It happens through the knowledge of the truth. How do people hear about the knowledge? How do they expose to the truth? They are through the committed lives of Christians in God's family. This is the context. This is the picture that Paul is painting for them because there's so much at stake. So look at verse 8 again. He says, Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray. Lifting up holy hands. That was the prayer posture of most times during the Bible. This was a prayer posture in the New Testament. So when he says lifting up holy hands, it's a prayer posture. I want, I want men to pray. Lift up their hands to God, and I want them to do it without anger or disputing. So, that is good and pleasing to God. Now, honestly, as I look out at you here today, um, there's nothing earth-shattering about what we've studied so far, is there? I don't even think anybody would disagree with anything that we've read so far today or have a different opinion. I mean, who doesn't want more people to pray? And who doesn't want the church more focused on prayer? And who doesn't want quiet and peaceful lives? Who doesn't want the focus to be on salvation? There's nothing earth-shattering here. Let's keep going. Look at verse 9. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, let's just, another you know, part of, of biblical interpretation, let's look at some words. When Paul says, I also want, that's very indicative of Scripture, of, of basically saying, what I want for men is the same thing that I want for the women. I, just like for men, I would like for women, I would like for their behavior and their demeanor in worship to be God-honoring and glorifying in all that we do. You might remember from some of my descriptions from our study in the book of Acts and in this series so far, what was Ephesus like? Ephesus was a very wealthy community, wasn't it? They had everything. They had everything they could ever want was right there in Ephesus. Paul lived there for three years, so he knows what it's like. He knows what Christians 
are exposed to. He knows what the church has access to. He's very aware of the cultural pressures. He's very aware of how society thinks and the pressure that that society put on men and women and the way their behavior should reflect. It's the same thing that we deal with today. There are cultural pressures that try to influence everything that we do. Same is true. Paul understands it. He's very aware. So he brings up what I believe are some of these cultural pressures, especially on the women in the church. That's causing things to be a little bit messed up in their worship. So he brings out elaborate hairstyles, expensive jewelry, gold pearls, expensive clothes. I think if I'm reading between the lines, and I want to be very careful when I do stuff like that, but if I'm reading between the lines, I think what Paul is really encouraging here, he's trying to say this, hey, let's make sure that we are here for all the right reasons. Let's make sure that when we gather for prayer and worship, we're here for all the right reasons. And maybe one of those wrong reasons would be to turn our worship services into a fashion show. That's not why we are here. And just like he's encouraging men, I don't want you guys to fight and argue, which causes problems and is just detrimental to worship of our Father. I don't want you ladies to dress in a way that makes worship more about you than it does God. You think about the language he puts on this and, and the implications. Can you imagine Christians gathering together and, and, and it's all about these external appearances and it completely puts the focus on who? Look at me. Instead of what worship should be about when we come in here is let's look towards God. And I think that's the implication here. So Paul uses words that pretty much mean the same thing then as it does now. He talks about women dressing modestly, um, expressing decency, um, expressing propriety in the way they dress, which just means making good judgment calls. And, and he gives some examples of things that lead away from those things. So he just calls out braided hair, gold pearls, expensive clothes. And we have to ask the question, how are we supposed to read this today? I can tell you what was true back then is still very much true today, that the way we express ourselves in our clothing, in our demeanor, in our modesty, um, all of those things can really speak to the inner person and what really your values are on the inside. And I think Paul is just saying, listen, dress in such a way that identifies you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, that's really, I think, at the heart of it. Does your clothes point people to Jesus or does your clothes turn the attention on you? Obviously, this was a major problem in the church at Ephesus. I think there's this implied challenge in the text where I think Paul is challenging the Christian women to major in on that inner person. And I think the implication is that there is a real beauty that comes from a child of God that the clothes you put on the outside and the jewelry you use to dress yourself cannot even touch the inner beauty that God's put in you through Jesus. So I think he's really just, the implication is like, let's pull out the who you are in Jesus more than what you're trying to make the world think of you. And, and obviously all of that was in play and causing problems. It, it does come down to this one singular question that is applicable for us today is that men and women together that when we come into the house of God to worship to sing praises to open our Bibles to share in communion what is at the heart of that of that worship is it going to be us or is it going to be God 
That's at the heart of it. What is this really all about? Me? Look at me? Or is it going to be, let's point people to God. Let's worship God. And I think that is the underlining issue of what's happening here in Ephesus. Now, again, let me just say this. All of that's pretty straightforward. I would be hard-pressed to believe that any of you would find disagreement. Hey, our worship should be focused on God, not us. We should dress in a way that glorifies God, not glorifies ourselves. I don't think there's much disagreement with these things. It's the next verse that ruffles a few feathers. Let's look at verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Okay, you're still here. Good. Paul goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who deceived and became a sinner. But women will be, well, you know, I'll let you read the rest on your own. Let's pray. <laughs> you got this, right? No, I'm just kidding. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and propriety. Uh, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, these five verses have been the source of years worth of debate in the church. And I'm, I'm anticipating right now that I'm not going to answer all the questions that you're going to have about this, these verses this morning. I would imagine we're going to walk out of here with some questions that are still unanswered. And there are questions that after years of debate have still not adequately been answered in people's minds. So there's a lot happening here um, but much of that discussion all revolves around, in these five verses, two really important words. There, there's two words in here that really cause the rub. And the first word is submission. And the second word is quiet. Those are two words that in today's culture, remember, we look at things, we tend to look at things through a worldly point of view. And so this idea of submitting to anybody well, that just causes some people to see red. And you want me to keep my mouth shut and not say a word? Well, that's just fighting words for a lot of people. I see a lot of you ladies laughing and smiling, so you get it, right? I understand. I understand. I remember, and in fact, I will never forget the very first time that my ministry intersected with these five verses of Scripture. I was 23 years old. This is the first preaching ministry that I've ever had, and I was invited uh, by some members of our church to their home. It was an elderly couple, and I was sitting in the living room with the husband, and we were talking about different things. I honestly can't remember what we were talking about. I'm sure some of it revolved around the church. And at some point in that conversation, his wife walked through the room and she innocently just interjected her thoughts on what we were talking about. I will never forget what happened next. He did this. Shh. I'm not kidding. This is not, I'm not elaborating. I'm not blowing. This is, and he's like, shh. And then he says, the Bible says women be silent. She put her head down, and she walked out of the room. Now, at 23, I was not brave enough to say what I'm totally brave enough to say at 43, all right? <laughs> Just letting you know. But when I was sitting there inside, I'm going, you are a jerk. And the second thought that was going through my mind is, I don't know everything, but I'm pretty confident 
that you're taking that verse out of its original context. Confident of it. And, and here is a reality about these five verses. And, and again, I'm not going to answer all your questions today, but, but here's a reality of it. That for far too long, far too many men and church leaders have abused these five verses. And they've taken them out of context, and they've used them as justification to be chauvinistic. It's true. It's a true statement for far too long. Now, I will tell you this, that there are two ways that most people interpret these five verses. And one way is this, is that, you know what, Paul was writing specific instructions just to the church in Ephesus about specific problems that just the church in Ephesus was having. And so this teaching is strictly enforced in Ephesus, not outside of Ephesus. Now, some people interpret this passage exactly that way. That makes sense, right? Seems pretty specific. Other people interpret this passage as Paul is writing rules that apply to the church in general and for all time. So what is the correct way to look at this? I can just shoot you straight. There are convincing arguments for both points of view. But here, I, I don't want to get into that discussion as much as I wanted to get into this one. Let's not lose sight of the context. What is the bigger picture? The church has lost its way due to false teaching. Their worship gatherings no longer reflected worship and honoring the Lord. Fights, arguments, a lack of prayer. Church became a fashion show. Who could outdo the other? And Paul was doing what? He was bringing order to the chaos. Now here's what I believe and here's what I understand from God's word. That God has an order about things in this world and in his church. What seems consistent across multiple passages of scripture throughout the Bible is it speaks consistently about this order. Here's what the Bible speaks about order and authority. It, 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 the Bible speaks about we are all submissive and under the authority of Jesus Christ. I mean, the Bible is very clear on that. We all submit to his authority. Friends, honestly, that's the beginning of it all. If people are submitted to Christ's authority, very little issues, you know, are, are in the Bible that we can't handle. It all comes down to our submissive Jesus Christ. And then as you get into a little bit further, the, the Bible speaks, and Paul speaks a lot of it, especially Ephesians chapter 5, about the order in the home. What's he write about? Husbands, love your wives. Too many guys stop right there. They forget the next part where it says, as Christ loved the church. You know how Christ loved the church? He died for it. And so the charge is, men, you die for your wives just like Christ died for the church. Why? Because you love her just like Christ loved the church. A lot of things can be solved if men would do that, don't you think? Then it talks about wives. Submit to your husbands. And again, sometimes husbands forget the next part, as to the Lord. So she is submissive first to Christ even more than her husband. I'm submissive to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That seems to be the order of the home. And then, what is the next line in the order? Children, obey your parents. Or we say, children, be submissive to your parents. In a perfect world, in Christ's perfect design, this makes sense. If you keep reading, what's it say? Slavery was a, uh, an issue. God never uh, praised slavery, never said it was a good thing, never approved of it, but it was a reality in Bible days. And so slaves, there were many slaves who became Christians, 
who were bound legally by their masters. How do they, how do they operate with submissiveness? Well, they too, just like you're submissive to Christ, but the teaching is slaves, obey your masters. We put a modern twist on, I shouldn't say twist and talk about scripture. We put a modern interpretation on this of like employees employ, em, obey your employers. Some of you may feel like I am a slave at work, so this works just fine. What else does it say? It talks about citizens be submissive to your governing authorities. Hear me. Paul, in chapter 2, is talking about order and authority, not value and ability. Do you hear what I'm saying? In chapter 2, Paul is talking about order and authority. He is not talking about value and ability. These verses in chapter 2, these five verses, they have nothing to do at all with one gender being better than the others. And far too many people have tried to, to take these verses and say one is greater than the other. And that's just not true at all. A, a complete counsel of God view and understanding what God says about men and women is so clear in Scripture that both are of equal value to God. There's no discrepancy in their value. But it's also true that neither gender was designed to fulfill the same roles in life. And this is where Scripture comes into conflict with cultural thinking, and that's perfectly fine. God designed men and women differently for His reasons. The differences fit into His grand plan. It's not about value. It's about embracing what God has designed and what His purposes are as they fit according to His will, not our will, His will. So when we talk about that word submission, true submission is really, it's about recognizing God's order and joyfully obeying it. That's really submission. God seems to have an order in the home, an order in the world, an order in the church. It's God's order. We submit to that. Now, I hope you know this. If you've been around here long enough, you know that we are a church who describes themselves as Bible people, Right? And when people ask me, what kind of church is New Life? I, I say this, well, we are a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. And if God desires orderly worship gatherings, orderly church leadership, and those things have something to do with protecting us from false teaching and false doctrine and false ways, then what does that look like in the church today? Now, we believe this, that again, I'm going to use this phrase over a couple more times, but we believe in God's perfect scenario, the way God's grand design is, the way he always envisioned it for us. How many of you know that, that God's perfect plan doesn't always come out perfectly in our lives? We all know that. But you're thinking in terms of God's perfect scenario, we see parallels of what God set up in the home and what God set up in the church. So our understanding about the order of the home is that God's desire is for husbands to be the head of the household that God has given them. Wives submit to their husbands as the Lord's children obey their parents. This seems to be the pattern for the home that's clearly lined out in Scripture. This also seems to be the pattern that is outlined for the church because the two parallel each other. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. The husband is the head of his household. The church is led in a similar way. Now, like I said, for reasons that are of the Lord's, leadership in the church is like the leadership in a home. Again, it's about order and authority. It has nothing to do with value and ability. 
Now, next week, when we go into chapter 3, I want you to kind of think of this sermon today as kind of a part 1, part 2. Next week is part 2, because when we get into chapter 3, Paul is going to give some very specific instructions about what the leadership of the church is supposed to be like, and he will charge men to lead the church well. So, in light of that, I want to say this as it relates to today's message. I believe personally, and I think many of you would agree with me, that if Christian men today will stand up, be bold and courageous, true men of God, uncompromising in their love for, their Lord, for the Lord and for their families, unwavering in their convictions, where they have feet that are firmly planted inside of God's words, who men whose knees have grown hard from years of being on them in prayer and humility before God, men who take on seriously putting on the full armor of God with all humility and honor. Men like that are leaders that I believe women would want to follow. So here at New Life, we're going to be biblical. So as a biblical church, men I am challenging you, each and every one of you today, just the men right now, to ask some very hard questions about your life. And I think one of those questions that should be asked is this, am I stepping up to the calling God has put in my life to lead? That's a question we need to wrestle with today, men. Another question is this, am I living my life with absolute integrity? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. Am I leading my family in the ways of the Lord? In other words, in the way that I express my faith in the home and make decisions, the way I live my life, does it bring my family closer to God or does it make them not want to have anything to do with the Lord? It's a hard question we have to ask. Men, I would say, are you setting an example in your own life today that anybody else in your church family would look at and say, I aspire to be like that in my own walk with Jesus? Before we leave chapter 2, again, remember the context. Paul is bringing order to that which has grown out of order. And I think chapter 2 makes us all ask a number of other questions. And one of those questions is this. For everybody in the church, am I in church for all the right reasons? Did I walk into this place today with the right reasons to worship God, to learn, to grow, to be with my church family? Am I here for all the right reasons? What am I motivated by? Why am I here? And I think another question that we should all ask men and women together is that are my motives for being in this place, are they self-centered or are they God-centered? Are my motives about look at me or is it let's look to God? Friends, I think at the heart of what Paul is trying to say about bringing things in order, I believe those questions are of utmost importance.